Alone I sit there, Chisel's bourbon bedroom floor, stupid cheating mole. That's a little haiku sent in from Yorskin Borscht, who's the head of the Australian Incel Association. Thank you, Yorskin, for sending that in. Great. Uh, welcome back to Talking Out Your Arts. Um, uh, this week, we have a very, very exciting episode. Um, They're all exciting. They are. It's another exciting episode, I would Thank say. Thank you. That's a better Which way to frame it. nothing out of the ordinary here at Toya. Yep. So, uh, if you're new to the podcast, we strongly suggest that you go back and listen to a few other episodes. In Absolutely. fact, we demand it. Demand it. They're yep. amazing. Actually, I feel like they're underappreciated. We're talking people right at the top of their game, top yep. of their fields, in the martial arts, in festival curating, in the uh, creative therapy realm, lots of different things. We had we have a guy who ran the Australian Baseball League, mm. sat down and talked to little old us. Mm. Amazing. Yep. We've got uh, a good mix, so do go back and uh, if you're joining us for the first time and you're you're, uh, you've heard about this episode and, and our very special guest this week. Um, yeah, have a look back at some of the other episodes. Uh, also, please, if you do like any of the episodes or this episode, rate it. Give it a review. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell other people about it. Tell your friends. Tell your mum. Tell your, tell your brother. Tell your weird uncle. Go, hey, weird uncle Kevin, guess what? There's a podcast that you might be interested in uh, because – it's kind of weird, and you're kind of weird, Kevin. That's it. That's how these things spread, Sam. Word of mouth. Um, so on to the episode. Yep. Yep. Shall I give him a little bit of a... Who are we talking yeah, to? We're talking about Inika Dane is the guest on this episode. Now, Inika Dane is an award-winning curator based in Brisbane. Uh, Inika has a background in contemporary art theory, law, policy, photography, and journalism. These disciplines inform her practice, and Inika currently works with UAP, Urban Art Projects, a global leader in the field of contemporary public art design and architecture. Sam, tell us a little bit more about UAP. Thanks, Hayden. Uh, UAP, not to be confused with the United Australian Party, which is a very unfortunate thing. I I think Mm. because Clive Palmer changed the name of the party after UAP had already been around for many, many years. Now, when you Google UAP, the first thing that comes up is the United Australia Party, which is really unfortunate for them. Um, So don't go to the United Australia Party page. Do not go and check that page out. No, they're doing very different things. I wouldn't call what they're doing public art. Yeah, yeah, well, some might, but uh, that's not for us to decide. UAP projects uh, or uapcompany.com is the website that you need to go and check out. They are makers and they it's spanning, uh, according to their website, it says, we are makers, spanning art, architecture, design, environments and everything in between. Whether it is permanent or temporary, we make incredible things for incredible creatives all over the world. They're Fucking quite. A. A, How do you like that? What more do you want? They're a pretty impressive mob. They are. I have to and, say. And look, it was a bit like uh, for an art fan. It was a bit like visiting the Wonka factory, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, they've so got a setup. There's two enormous warehouses. Well, we should tell people that we actually recorded yeah. this episode at their premises. We did indeed in Brisbane, and we got a personal tour. Um, and <clears throat> there's a fair chance if you've seen any any public art within the country and even internationally, there's a fair chance it was made 
there at UAP. That's um, right. For example, the um, the building across from the Brisbane Airport that mm-hmm. has all those little um, steel panels that move in the wind. There's another similar one here in, in South, uh, Brisbane, South Brisbane, Gray Street, yep. made at UAP. Yep. And they were making a – they took us down to the workshop area where they were making a massive big – installation that was i believe going to hong kong i think i had that right sounds fair um let's just go with that and another one that was uh, going to be a bus that was inverted like it was going to be yeah a, on its end on that its, was for melbourne i yeah. believe and uh so they, they do amazing huge installations but then also smaller projects and mm. and all mm. kinds of things in between and so um, and so what what so Inica obviously has her own practice and her own right mm-hmm. um but works as a curator there and a curator as she goes into for for a company like UAP is quite different to what a curator might do in a gallery so they basically yeah. they'll get a, a um a tender come in or a commission come in and they will curate the team including the artists through to the the construction team and and they kind of manage the entire project from start to finish yeah, and basically they're like a uh, a um a stepping stone or a middle a, a conduit between the client who may be a huge construction industry a huge construction company and the uh, artist who is actually curated and commissioned to make the artwork for that uh, client so yeah um, she's the conduit between those two things and it's a fascinating world and um, it's a fascinating chat and and as you say we, we sort of touched on her role at UAP but also her own individual practice as a curator and an artist in her own right and we we got into some really fascinating territory so totally it's a, it's a great yeah. chat and um yeah i we'll, think we'll uh, leave it at that otherwise we'll give yeah. nothing to listen to that's right gotta have some surprises in the bag so uh talking out your arts with episode uh Whatever number this is, yep. Uh, just go back through the list and then add one to that. Whatever, whatever the next number is, yeah. That's what we you are. Don't really order them. They're not really in an order, are they? It's just the next episode. It's a deliberate concept that it, they can be listened to in any order. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So welcome. Enjoy the episode and enjoy listening to the fascinating Inika Day. All right, Inika Dane, thank you for joining us on Talking Out Your Arts. Um, Pleasure. <laughs> and it's lovely to be here at uh, your workplace and thank you for making the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule to have a chat with us. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting for us to find out more about what you do both in this capacity at uh, Urban Art Projects and also your own individual I guess, uh, career as a curator and, and um, artist, maybe in your own right, depending <laughs> on how you define yourself. So that's probably a good place to start. Um, yeah. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, bit about, you know, who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, thanks so much. So, um, yeah, my name's Inika Dane. I'm currently a senior curator at UAP, Urban Art Projects. Um, here at UAP... We make a lot of big art. Um, you can't see it right now, but if I describe where we're sitting, we're kind of 
perched up at the top corner of what essentially is two big aeroplane hangars uh, filled with pattern making and robots and a foundry and a whole team of uh, painters and workshop staff and heads of blacksmithing and finishing um, where we make uh, large-scale artworks with artists. We kind of see ourselves as an extension of the artist's studio. Um, And it will go not just to Brisbane but um, to locations all over Australia and the world. And UAP uh, was begun right here in Brisbane by twin brothers Matt and Dan Tobin uh, almost 30 years ago. Um, and they just kind of humbly worked and worked and have since grown the studio um, internationally. So we have a foundry and um, workshops and a whole team of curators and designers and project managers in Shanghai and also in New York. It's an incredible company. Like, and being here, it's uh, you know, it's is this is so cool to me to come in here and have this massive, massive workshop. Like, you know, this industrial setting of people with all kinds of skills and crafts, like making art. Like, it really is kind of a a dream setting, right? When you're you're a kid and you want to be in the arts and work in that environment. Yeah. It's like a Willy Wonka of the art world kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's so cool. So, um. So uh, you're a senior curator within UAP. Obviously, you don't just work in this organisation, but what is, I guess, in a nutshell, your role here? Yeah, that's a good question because um, being a public art curator is a little bit different to being a curator in a gallery. Um, So we work with a lot of councils, local government, architects and developers, as well as artists, to kind of uh, master plan or think about the public realm and how that can become, I suppose, in a way, um, more human. Um, There's a lot of public art incorporated into development DAs, so development applications as conditions of their development. And that's kind of one way of cities or councils encouraging a form of corporate social responsibility. Uh, We don't have too much of that in Australia, but art's a really wonderful way of um, encouraging developers to give back to the community that they're essentially going to um, benefit from or profit from from for years and decades into the future. So, Who enforces that? Does that come from government that kind of leads that um, process of of that requirement for developers to include those sort of things? It usually comes from um, the local council or kind of constituent where the actual development is cited and um, there's different levels of leniency and, um, yeah, rigidity, I suppose. So, like, City of Sydney is very rigid. Um, They're percent for art requirement and um, it's generally around 1%, so that could mean anything from a couple of hundred thousand to a couple of million spend on public art, um, which sounds extreme, I know, um, but once you uh, encounter or kind of factor in engineering requirements, um, install um all of the design developments or visualisation that can incorporate, you know, um, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality kind of 
um, processes within the pattern making. So it's very time consuming. There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of heads in the one room, a lot of wages, a lot of planning approvals. And yeah, it does um, kind of vaporize pretty quickly. Um, but then there are smaller councils who just might have it as a kind of guide you know, like a soft policy. Yeah. So I would kind of describe it as soft versus hard policies. So and like an environmental impact kind of uh, yeah. requirement that a developer has to meet. Yeah. Well, we wish that those were harder <laughs> with the environmental kind of impact stuff. But um, yeah, I think that one way that councils kind of ensure that this uh, requirement is satisfied is they tie the installation of the public art to the occupancy certificate to um, make sure that there's like an, a commercial incentive, I suppose, for people to actually fulfil that requirement. But then smaller councils, you know, if you're out in Ipswich, for example, you really want to encourage developers to come out there. Um, you don't want to impose an onerous um, requirement that might deter development. So I guess it's kind of balancing um, the needs of the community and the economy and, yeah. So then do you find that the developers then approach UAP to go, hey, we have this requirement or or hopefully we want to do this um, but we know nothing about art projects can you help us? Is that exactly? Sort of how it works? Yeah, that's how most of our um, projects come through. Sometimes an artist has won a big project and we come on board, um, just kind of realize and create the work and work with them straight from um, concept design. So that kind of skips the curatorial process. Um, but I suppose getting back to what I do. It um, is largely a lot of writing, I suppose, and responding to councils' requirements, working with architects and developers to um, form a brief. And then we do a lot of artist research and kind of shortlisting. So there's a lot of liaising with artists who we think might respond well to a site, having chats with them. Um, are they interested? What do they think about a particular you know, site or program or um, location? and uh, inviting them to um, a paid concept design competition, essentially. Usually it's competition between several artists and then one artist is selected to move forward for the commission. Do you frame it as a competition? We do, yeah. Yeah, it's something I struggled with, actually, when I first um, began in permanent this kind of permanent public art uh, world, I suppose. My background before was more independent, curating group shows, exhibitions and temporary public art, um, which is very, very different in many ways. I could probably go on about that for a bit, but um, the, a lot of, some artists are a bit taken aback when you ask them to compete. If I were a gallery curator, I would um, work quite rigorously um, in my selection of artists and I would um, just commission directly because I have faith in that artist's practice and I'm happy for that outcome to be a surprise, you know, like I don't need to make a choice. I put my faith in that artist because I trust their practice and I want them to, you know, experiment and take risks. Public art, particularly permanent public art, if you're thinking that it's going to last for 20, 25 years, you know, now into the future, um, sometimes the concepts that you need to work with are uh, 
less political, less risk-taking. They're in the public also, so there's no um, threshold that someone has to cross to encounter them. Um, They're also open to a lot more scrutiny. 100%. I I can think of a few examples like the Gold Coast sign on the M1 uh, that copped so much backlash because unlike an art gallery – where you're inviting people to come, like they have a free choice whether yeah, they, they want to enter choice. into that gallery yeah. and go and view that art or yeah. not. When it's on the side of a highway, people don't have that choice. So you're also opening yourself up to huge comment from anyone and everyone. You are subjecting people to something whether they like it or not. I mean, there's good and bad art everywhere. There's good and bad art inside a gallery wall and there's good and bad art outside the gallery wall. But, yeah, obviously the, like... The, the difference is, you know, that choice of entering a gallery space or entering a closed space versus um, happening upon it. Yeah, yeah you, can't, you can't know your audience or even make any sort of guesses or inferences yeah. about who your audience might be because it's everybody. Well, you try, but it's not yeah. always possible. <laughs> what, are the, what are the considerations when, when putting something in a public space where um, – you know, you said political. Obviously, you want something mm. that's that's more timeless rather than you know temporal. Um, but what are the what are sort of the other considerations? Because obviously, you can't please everybody. And I think we've all heard people on the street go, you know, criticize a public artwork work as a, a pile of steel junk or something <laughs> like that. Or the Byron Bay example. Or, 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 or poo yeah. on sticks. That was famously yeah. in King's Cross yeah. for many right. years. Yeah, yeah. As it was affectionately known as. Yes. Yeah. So how much We that? love a colloquial <laughs> slang in yeah. Australia. Yeah. <laughs> like how much is that a factor and how much does that hamstring, you know, the creative process? Yeah, so... Um, I think I'm lucky in a way to have gone from um, my role with Caldor Public Art Projects in Sydney, which is temporary public art projects, um, ephemeral, and then come to UAP up here in Brisbane, and which is um, predominantly more permanent public artwork and have, um, have the kind of vantage points of both to compare. So with uh, temporary public art... Um, there's so many more liberties, I think, in many ways. Um, the first thing is the site. Um, you know, when you think of John Caldwell's first project, it was Crystal and Jean-Claude's Wrapped Coast Little Bay in 1969 where they literally wrapped an entire coastline. And then more recently, you know, in my time with um, Caldwell, we had uh, kind of a heritage rotunda at the Sydney Observatory that we could install a sound work on Risala, um, on Risala's last resort in, and um, even then, just thinking about the materiality of those two works, um, it's very hard to mimic a fabric materiality, for example, in a permanent artwork. And then Henri's work, which was um, dozens of suspended kind of snare drums with, uh, it was like a kinetic drumsticks essentially playing the drums in this uh rearranged Mozart Mozart's concerto um uh in C minor if my memory is correct um fact check um but you know that that's that was kind of coastal as well like it was on on the harbour you know thinking about the elements and the wind and the fact that we needed security kind of 24-7 or overnight, like that kind of 
project just couldn't be realized in a permanent way so materiality then is the next thing like permanent public artwork has to be bomb proof essentially um there's all these crazy legislation kind of requirements like um there's a whole piece of statute on entrapment for example like can a kid's head get caught in this so because you don't have someone monitoring that work or saying oh please don't you know touch don't don't let your child go near here you know it has to be uh, written in the work essentially Probably. <laughs> That's, um, that comes under the child clause. Yeah. Yeah. Safety, yeah. Engineering. Uh, unsupervised safety. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 I mean, even thinking about there was um, a City of Sydney proposed work with Japanese artist, architect, uh, Junya Ishigami, and it was this kind of wispy cloud arch right at town hall and it, it went from being like a two million dollar project to a ten million dollar project because they hadn't un- anticipated the railway underneath and so the footings had to have some like extravagant extra engineering that just totally blew it actually just killed the project wow. um and yeah yeah so so i guess like yeah your options um are more limited in a way with um permanent public safety, art durability safety and, and durability dur- not yeah. to mention then the concepts you have the liberty to work with like a you can oh sorry go <laughs> I'll just keep That's an edit. i guess just to yeah finish up on saying like well some permanent public artwork can be quite you know groundbreaking and political in a sense like you you can't often respond to like a moment in time that might be passing for example or um yeah i was gonna say do you find the most when you think of the most impactful public artworks that you can think of were they all temporary pieces because obviously they can be a lot more pointed and and art is often most powerful when it's it's uh it's born out of a particular set of circumstances and time Mm. i think that a lot have been um, temporary that I can think of. But then um, at the same time, like when the architecture, the site and the artwork really like um, sings and crystallises, I suppose, there are some fantastic examples of permanent public artwork that I think, um, yeah, really resonated with me and kind of lodged with me and the examples I can think of um, I guess immediately is um, Toshima Island the Toshima Museum in Japan there's some amazing examples you know architects who think like an artist as well like Tado Ando or um, David RJ or um, there's still a Scafidio Renfro also um, yeah they are able to create a whole environment that seems to kind of lodge and wash over you. Yeah, this particular Tashima Art Museum kind of uses the sky as its canvas as a kind of cut. It looks like this kind of grey cement spaceship that you kind of – it surprises you as you come over kind of a mound, I suppose. So you're arrested by that at the beginning and then uh, you take your shoes off and enter this kind of – um, light field capsule that um, 
that hero is the sky and what's passing in the sky. So that frames the sky in a way. I'm kind of waving my arm around in a circle mm-hmm. shape <laughs> um, right now. And then uh, from the floor, there's these droplets of water that emerge and disappear like pools and almost kind of magnesium like and then you're trying not to tread on the water but then you're like well I can tread on it's just like this amazing um synergy of elements and uh where is the space is it just it's on an island just off the coast of Japan Mm, that um it's kind of like a Benesi site there's a series of islands Naoshima Toshima and Forget the third one, but um, yeah, there there've been. Um, I mean, I guess it's a story about like the way art can transform a space because these islands uh, had very aging populations and um, they were really heavily mined. Like um, you could tell the men who worked on the mines, like their skin was kind of quite red and affected and it was quite extreme, and they were phasing that out from memory. And then this. Um, Mr. Vanessi, <laughs> um, I suppose he injected, you know, an entrepreneur, wealthy entrepreneur, he revitalised those islands by turning them into these, like, major um, attractions for people to come from all over the globe to see um, not just the museum that I described, but there's um, these kind of traditional Japanese houses, a series of, say, six, that have each got... Um, an installation within them so it's refurbishing those kind of existing building stock I guess for lack of a better word and then and then there's the Chi Chi Art Museum which is just three artists there's um, a whole room just for three Monet kind of um, paintings and it's not lit it's um, just lit with natural light coming through a skylight then there's actual Monet yeah right yeah um, Monet-esque and no Monet actual money, right. yeah, some lilies, and you have to take your shoes off again. A lot of taking your shoes off in Japan, obviously. <laughs> but um, I remember as much as the money is like the floor, and that goes, I guess, to um, the synergy of you know uh, art, design, architecture. The floors were these like chalky, beautiful kind of marble white stones um, about two centimetres by two centimetres and they didn't have grout around them. It's just this beautiful space around the the tiles and the floor. And, yeah, I suppose that's this idea of this whole kind of experience. Sensory experience. Yeah, I guess yeah. the German words like the Gesamtkunstwerk, like the whole, yeah, where they would talk about the garden also as um, being part of the experience, the furniture everything i think there was Tyrell also it's designed by tato ando again and then it was um money james Tyrell and walter de maria oh yeah a lot of men maybe we need a mm. female version of that yeah. <laughs> um i was just gonna ask uh, when you were talking about the factors to consider one thing that and, and you may you may consider this but do you consider the demographic of the area that you're that the proposed work is meant to be in. Um, it was interesting to hear you talk that you're considering these other, you know, safety, material, permanency, and at what point, if you do consider demographic of a particular area at all, and at what point in the process does that happen? Is that from the beginning or, or once you've kind of worked out those universal factors, you then go, okay, well, who are the people that actually live in this community and and should we make something that speaks to them directly or 
or not. Yeah, 100%. I think we try and consider that as early as possible. Um, for example, you know, there's some projects just now in Western Sydney and it wouldn't make sense to drop a big international artist into that project, which is essentially kind of a smaller transport for New South Wales infrastructure kind of project. Like you want a work that the community can feel um not intimidated by, I suppose, and that they feel like they can connect to and kind of um, shares their story as much as the artists. And in that way, there's a huge responsibility with public art, I suppose. And, um, you know, it, it's also a very relevant consideration when we're working um, on a commission where an Aboriginal artist is specified. So there will often be um, an Aboriginal stakeholder group and it's really important from the get-go that the artist is connected with them so that they can, um, you know, share stories, share knowledge, make sure that the work kind of captures the um, the local narratives and history of place, um, which, you know in Australia is um, so, so difficult because there was so much displacement for hundreds of years and forced displacement. And so, um, yeah, I suppose it taps into this idea that art can be a boundary breaker and can create space to talk about some of the more difficult things in society and um, our history. And definitely we're seeing at the moment that um, artists are creating the space for kind of reshaping Australia's identity, I suppose. It's a pretty exciting time. Yeah. Do you find uh, sometimes when you do bring an outside artist into a community that there is a risk of them sort of imposing their ideas of what what that community needs or what their inspiration or or, um, aspirations need to be and you mitigate that with this sort of a consultation research process? Yeah, and it doesn't always work and you've got to be open for that kind of um, outcome, I suppose. Like sometimes it fails but that's okay because you've kind of done your best in a way and if it didn't work this time then maybe it works next time and you don't know what um, politics are simmering underneath that you haven't Mm. been privy to or, um, yeah, and it's – as relevant with community consultation mm. as kind of cultural consultation and well, sometimes it's both and sometimes yeah. it's none, you know, a big project in Circular Key because it's such, you know, an international moment in Sydney's kind of um, landscape that, you know, might be more of a international artist response kind of thing and, yeah. and a big stage to kind of have that high-profile moment. There was one that stands out in my mind that was um, quite disastrous for Dark Mofo, where they had a, yeah. uh, a Spanish artist, Santiago who, Sierra. Yeah, uh, who was doing was it uh, Indigenous blood? Yeah, on a flag. Yeah, on a on a Union, on a Union Jack. Yeah, and uh, good. yes, blood yeah. donations, which got terrible backlash. I yeah. mean, we all have our own ideas, but in your, in your words, in a nutshell, what do you think? Why do you think that all went so poorly, that whole idea? Well, um, in the words of my very 
good friend Emma Pike, who's a curator at Mona, and just to distinguish, Mona is a separate company now to Dark Mofo, although the branding kind of is synonymous, so that's where the problem lies. So you, Dark Mofo messes up, then uh, Mona and Mona Foma, the summer festival, also gets kind of a bad rap. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, in Emma's words, completely tone deaf wasn't his place to make that statement. It wasn't okay that they got one Aboriginal elder, um, a, uh, I think they were Palawas, so the Tasmanian um, Indigenous community elder, to say, yeah, that sounds like an okay idea and just, like, tick that box for community acceptance. Um, does, that, does that responsibility fall on the head of the artist or the people that commissioned him to make the art? In the yeah, place? I mean, without naming names... <laughs> Um, of course, responsibility, like, yeah, I can't believe that it got through so many, um, you know, there would have been so many conversations and people signing off on this. Yeah, it's well, like, um, pretty from crazy. From our own experience, when we get commissioned to do a work at a festival, mm. a, a performance work, it's not like, mm. it's very rare, if ever, that you ever get just total free reign to go make whatever you want and we're never going to... Without any checks and balances. Without checks and balances or responsibility. And um, so I I find it, obviously, there's shared responsibility. That artist has his own, you know, tone deaf, as you say. But I also go, well, who who let that get through to the camera? Well, it's poor curating also. I mean, like, I'll put it back on my own kind of profession. And uh, I do know there is, like, a satellite curator that's based in Europe that was one of the key curators of that. And and um, I guess it's just a classic example of not knowing your audience well enough or not doing enough research on the ground. Um, but... I think the apology, you know, there was an apology from David Walsh and um, not that that ameliorates the damage at all. The damage was done. But um, Santiago Sierra, I mean, you know, he is an artist who uses exploitation to show exploitation. And um, is that okay? Well, in the end it got caught and the work didn't Mm. happen Mm. and, you know, I think that that's the appropriate outcome. If that risk is okay, in terms of a curator, you know, a curator and or a programmer or whatever, because taking those risks as an artist is really important. Mm-hmm. So then, is it as just just as important on a curatorial level as well to be able to take those risks? Because, like, when you look at um, Mona more broadly, like the risks and the freedom that they had was from a private person, you know, funding and curating this. And that affected so much positive change. But do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, is that risk okay? Does the means justify the ends? Mm. Or, or, yeah. I think that if you have to ask, is it hurting someone? And if it, uh, not necessarily physically, but emotionally or like in any other way, is someone vulnerable because of this? And if they are, then it's maybe you have to reconsider um yeah yeah it's great to have freedom of speech and push boundaries and um be shocking i mean at least we're all having this discussion but um even are we discussing the right things like 
should we be discussing like colonialism more rather than the fact that Santiago Sierra um, created a completely like tone deaf proposal for dark mofo like should we be a bit more self-reflective as to our own history like maybe yeah you could you could make the argument that that's exactly what he was into trying yeah yeah i think good intentions and i can see i can even see why they thought the the idea for the artwork was a good idea but i think the problem came down to who whose voice like who's Mm. making the artwork Mm. who's driving it Mm. and perhaps um just paternalistic again which is the whole problem of colonization yeah. in the first place yeah. and that external kind yeah. of voice yeah does all of this play into it's a term that i'm i'm new to but um you know you curated uh, an exhibit at metro and the, uh, this term i came across critical spatial practice is this is this all part of what critical spatial practice is about and can you you know for people who have never heard that term before explain a little bit about what that is yeah. Um, no, I would disassociate critical spatial practice with what Santiago <laughs> was trying to do. If that's kind of um, that question, but I'll just kind or of I'll separate an, an that. But I'm happy to. Doing? <laughs> I'm happy to chat about critical spatial practice. Um, so, in a nutshell, um, critical spatial practice explores the social, cultural, and political potential of space and architecture. And um, I very much came to realise it was as much about what's there as what's not there, the spaces as well as so positive spaces as well as negative spaces. Um, that particular project, Conversations on Shadow Architecture, was born from a trip years ago to Cairo just after the um, Arab Spring or kind of during it at the tail end but in the lead-up of what they were calling um, a democratic election or their first democratic election post-Mubarak. Um, it turned out that it wasn't that democratic in the end and that um, some friends, one of the um, artist in the exhibition. She's Egyptian um, from Cairo and just recently went back to um, Cairo just a couple of months ago and she said it's actually worse now than it was um, uh, yeah, at the at the revolution. Is that because they've doubled down on like... Probably and uh, maybe people are tired. They're kind right. of tired of pushing back and um, but I suppose... The motivation then grew to explore like our surroundings, I suppose. And at the time that I thought of this exhibition and wanted to kind of bring it into life, you know, 10 years ago, um, I wasn't a curator at all, really. I was living in Berlin. I just come off the back of a law degree. I was working in climate change um, policy with the Wuppertal Institute, um, an international environmental think tank. as well as, you know, being an arts editor editor to a magazine. So, like, always kind of, like, feet in many places, I suppose. But but it's interesting that, um, yeah, now I work in architecture and public art and public space because, yeah, I am 
interested in exploring and I don't have the answers at all. That's why I did this project. I wanted artists, composers, architects to respond to this provocation. You know, what what is your response to critical spatial practice? What do you think the potential is of architecture and space and our surroundings? Um, you know, how do our surroundings choreograph or institute our being or how is a community's kind of collective conscious um, informed by the buildings around us or the landscape around us and um, or the absence of the buildings yeah like, you, like you're saying about that is that what you mean by shadow architecture as well is that yeah so shadow it's kind of <laughs> I think I tried to pack a few too many things into this exhibition so and and then I just liked the idea or the the words shadow architecture together but they're actually borrowed from um a Polish architect, Alexandra Wasikalska, um, and she coined that term actually, you know, around 2012, around the um, time of the Arab Spring and um, this big kind of moment of revolution. Um, that, yeah, I should say maybe back step a tiny bit, but Tahrir Square in Cairo, big open space um, where there was. Um, a big tent city for protesters and activists and um, people just um, came to inhabit that space as showing their um, uh, unhappiness with the with the regime. And I suppose that's what we're meaning when we say, you know, space can give rise to, you know, in to this um, great massing of people, I suppose, who can, uh, with that massing, show some power against something that seems um, indestructible or uh, iron, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, shadow architecture then kind of brings in the economy in a way <laughs> because um, I think it's something like, and again, fact check, but uh, a huge percentage, maybe half a percentage of the global circulating capital in the world is um, not, like, officially recorded um, and... And Alexandra Vasikalska, this architect, came up with this term shadow architecture as the structures that support the informal or shadow economy. So they're often structures that aren't actually touched by an architect or um, registered builder at all. They're your like market stalls, they're your corner kind of fruit stand, the bookshelf or the flower stand or all of these kind of um, very informal yet highly resourceful um, and kind of genius structures that people use um, in the DIY or kind of um, informal economy and to survive essentially in the world. So I just felt that it had a nexus with this critical spatial practice um, in terms of thinking about different potentials of space and architecture. Mm. And this um, practice, this underpins now your your whole approach to any any public art project. Would you say? Mm. Yeah, I definitely think I'm um, one of the more uh, <laughs> how would I describe it? I'm probably a bit more difficult to work with than some of the other public art curators <laughs> because I fight back if I think that. Um, yeah, if I if I think something can be <laughs> pushed harder, or if um, yeah, if I think that uh, yeah, a boundary can be pushed, I 
try and advocate for that. I think that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> and I, I would hope that other public art organisations would have people just like you in them because if you didn't, imagine the, imagine the, the, the result if there was no one pushing back going, yeah. oh, hang on a minute, and the, you know, then you get things coming through that are very either completely beige and, and or disconnected from the community or the space or problematic at mm. the, in the worst instance. And so mm. I think having critical thinkers like yourself in there uh, challenging those ideas and, and Agitating. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's not always it's possible. <laughs> but, um, you know, a balance between the poetic and the political in a way and sometimes it's more one way and sometimes it's more the other and sometimes it's somewhere in the middle. I mean... Um, we've got a wonderful work that's about to be installed um, in kind of this four-story corner glass atrium in Sydney down at the Rocks by Janet Lawrence. I'm kind of one of our pioneer environmental artists um, in Australia. Um, you know, she did a big installation, I think, at um, the Paris Conference of the Parties a few years ago. I think that was about 2015. I think, you know, obviously right now we're up to... COP26, the big United Nations um, climate change convention in Glasgow, kind of hot topic at the moment, no pun intended. Um, but Janet's, um, she wants to create the feeling of a giant greenhouse in this huge um, four-story atrium. And so there's going to be kind of 77 giant semi-concave, semi-transparent um panels suspended um, a bit kaleidoscopic in a way with imagery of um, endemic plants that um, she's captured around the Sydney greater um, region um, printed onto um, the concave elements that look glass-like essentially and so that will have so her way of kind of uh, subversively kind of bringing nature back into the cities through this artwork. And on the face of it, that doesn't seem political. It's um, this beautiful gesture, but it is um, actually, you know, un- when you scratch the surface, quite um, political and a very strong work. Yeah. And then, you know, in New York, we did an amazing piece um, with Kehinde Wiley um, in Times Square and he, and it was kind of around this time where um, Confederate monuments were being pulled down all over the states and his um, response to that was to create this giant um, statue of an African-American kind of young guy in a hoodie and kind of atop this horse that's kind of rearing and um, and it's so powerful and wonderful and, you know, that's a permanent artwork. So, yeah, I think that there are wonderful examples of permanent public artwork as much as um, the temporary, but um, it can be harder sometimes in the smaller commercial developments. And, and, and when was that artwork... Um Reveal. The figure on the horse. When when was that? Was that did that come out of the Black Lives Matter? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 was around the same time. I think it was. I want to say twenty nineteen. Maybe it was twenty twenty. So that is both uh, relevant to a point in time, but timeless as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And why shouldn't we have more and more monuments like mm. that? Mm. You know. Yeah. What do you think? Um, 
like there's some great specific examples, but I guess generally speaking, um, you know, the the invisible um, impact that visual that uh, public art has on the on the average person who maybe doesn't consider themselves an art appreciator. Um, how did how might it affect them in ways that they maybe they're not even conscious of? Do you think? Mm. Well, this might be a good time to read my quote <laughs> that I didn't write, but I wanted to share reason, it at some point. Yeah, I mean, the reason we ask is yeah. kind of the intention of this podcast yeah. is to is to highlight ways in which. Uh, we're all consumers of of art without necessarily consciously knowing that we are. Yeah, so it's um because we were looking at you know um, I think in your exhibition there was this uh, David sent through a link to us this great TED talk by Eddie Rama. <gasps> yeah, um, who talks about you know taking back the city with paint. So just very briefly, that was a uh, was yep. in Albania, exactly in Tirana, the capital. Yep, and he he commissioned all these dilapidated buildings to be painted in bright yeah. colours and it completely... Because yes. yeah, the colours were not in the European palette. <laughs> yes, whatever, that is, whatever that means. Yeah, great and dull. But um, it, it actually reduced crime and, and, and it, to me it made me think of, you know, broken window theory, this, this idea, um, you know, broken window theory briefly... Anyone listening hasn't heard it. It's just a, a theory, I guess, a metaphor that illustrates the idea of um, pride of place and and how your environment can impact you. So, if you live in a place that is is run down and with lots of broken windows, um, that that might um, give a feeling of disorder and chaos, and then disorder and chaos breeds crime, which in turn breeds more disorder and chaos. So, mm. if you fix the windows, you know, um, and that's a theory that's affected policy. You know, since the eighties or nineties when it came out. Yeah, no, that's a great like um, metaphor. I think to use in many different situations, and I'm so glad you brought up the Henri Sala work, the um, Dummy Ecolori. Um, so I'll read this quote and then I'll talk about that maybe. And this quote I stole from a young artist um, when I was assessing um, grants years ago. <laughs> but I, I just thought it was so good and I've used it um, kind of in opening speeches and things ever since. But it, it says, while scientific, economic, technological research is essential to the stewardship of humanity, the emotional motivation for people to change their behaviours can best be shared through art. And I totally kind of agree with that in a way. Like there's a there's an argument to have an artist on the board of every company, you know, in the in the world, and just to encourage that kind of different way of thinking or interdisciplinary thinker thinking. Um, and the work that you described by Henri Sala, I think, is just such an amazing example of people um, being swept up in an act and it's a very generous act like there's a lot of generosity in art and I think whether you consider yourself an art appreciator or not you somehow realize that through the artwork someone is being vulnerable and they're sharing something with you and they're allowing you into their kind of world in a way and with Dami e Kalori um, it's a perfect example of how art can shift the, this collective conscious of a community because Eddie Rama, as you say, who was at the time the mayor of Tirana, who's now 
um, what um, so that was in 2003 that works so more than a, nearly 20 years later he's the Prime Minister of Albania um, so he talks about um, the relationship of a mayor to his constituent as similar to an artist and their audience and he said um, suddenly everyone whether they like it, the colours or not, are talking about the colours of this building in the coffee shop, in the hairdresser, in the supermarket. And so they are tethered immediately by this common kind of discussion point and it's bringing people together. And it's not just doing that, it's also um, shifting them from their immediate circumstances because if you see the film, you'll see traces of... Um, you know, uh, untold years of civil war in that city, you know, there's um, dirt and debris and broken mirrors and kind of um, ad hoc infrastructure everywhere. And by um, just, uh, yeah, sweeping the city in colour, essentially, you're elevating the collective mood and um, ultimately incredibly positive shift and um, economical in many ways. Yeah, ele- elevating is, is a good word for it. And I imagine too, yeah, econ- economically because it makes it a destination. Yeah, I Absolutely. People suddenly want to yeah. go there and see it. Yeah, that's what he says also reminded me. Um, he said, I wanted to um, make this city a place that people um, chose to live and chose to um, visit over being a place where you were destined to be by birth or circumstance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it strikes me just, I mean, slight tangent, but it, it's um, it's a shame that art often gets uh, politicised in the way where it gets associated with left or right-wing politics as well. Just mm. interesting hearing that trajectory of of that guy, it, it, it was sort of I'd never, at no point do you get the impression that it's like, oh, because he's a lefty that he's pushing this agenda. It's about community and connection and unity, actually, which should be a policy that is relevant to both conservative politics and left-wing politics. And and yet, so for so long in, in every field of art, art always gets associated with the left. I guess and left it, because mm. it's a progressive idea. It seems like a radical idea, but um, but it's not that radical when you think about it in terms of public yeah. policy and and infrastructure and and what you do in terms of urban art and and interactivity with community uh, and business and and that that whole intersection. It's just uh, it's one of those things that I wish was not associated with because. Politics will always flip between left and right and left mm. and right. It will everywhere around the world. It's always going to sway like a pendulum from left to right. And so, if art gets swept up just only with the left, then we're as artists at the mercy of political an agendas. incoming or outcoming exactly. government. I and mean, it yeah, needs to kind of go across. Well, both. well, and it's often seen as a luxury rather than you know. In this case, he's used it as a as a balm. You know, he's yeah. going, if I can help the people heal their self perception. And, That's and what and I was, exactly what I was going to say. It's yeah. seen as a luxury. Art, art is seen as a luxury and, um, yeah. As opposed to a necessity, like when you go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, in a building proposition for a developer, there's yeah. a requirement to have 1% of, yeah. your, uh, of the cost of the, uh, of the, build. the build go mm. towards an, uh, a community art project or an urban art project. And, mm. and I think... That's what I'm getting at. Is that if it's embedded in the in the 
in the infrastructure of the policy, mm. then that doesn't matter which government is in power. An artist is still going to get commissioned to make an artwork because the developer is got to they have a requirement to do it's it. It's cultural as well. Like, um, mm. you know, in Australia, it's a very different set of circumstances to, you know, Germany or part, other parts of Europe. So what was that, um, like, campaign that went around recently? Like, if we dedicated the last five minutes of the news to the art every night instead of, like, sports, like, what kind of different culture would we yeah. have? Mm. And I think, you know, it's a very good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, and we felt it in our industry heavily during COVID. Um, you know, the other performing arts got was at the bottom of the list. Live mm. performing arts specifically. Yeah, 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 live performing arts. Film was okay, but yeah, theatres and... Well, this is something Richard Bell has been talking about a lot actually and like everyone know who Richard Bell is, you know, one of our prominent um, contemporary Indigenous artists in Australia and he's been invited to... Um, create a new work for documenta like the um every five years castle germany it's like considered the preeminent kind of contemporary art uh festival for lack of a better word or, or showcase um in the world like forget venice biennale documentary is kind of where it's at and he it took him so long to get a permit to be able to even travel you know for this big career move essentially whereas sports teams have been shipped around the whole time and accommodated during COVID and he just um yeah we were chatting you know a little while ago and he just made that point and I thought that's a bloody good point actually like so we um green light and pave the way for sports even the Olympics in Tokyo but you know the the equivalent equivalent Olympics of the art world. Um, we're not letting our like top career well, artists travel well, for that, only unless they're a film star. Also, yeah. So this is where it gets grey because mm. you go, they're they're artists, but mm. why do they get special compensation mm. over someone like that? That you go, they're they're just as high profile an artist just because. They're not in every film that you watch and you don't know you, – you might not know who they are if you're not in that world. Mm. You know, they don't get the same level of treatment. It's like it's it, – it feels so subjective and it's um, – Well, ultimately comes down to your value system as a society, I suppose, which is all the more kind of argument for uh, art in the public um, realm because – there is also, I mean, um, I feel very lucky to have worked with John Cowdor um, in Sydney and he, one of his reasons for doing the temporary um, public art projects for uh, the 50 years, um, bringing, you know, mainly international artists to Australia to create this free to the public um, art experience and um, part of his motivation and kind of passion is to break down those boundaries and this kind of idea that art is um, a high kind of uh, form of entertainment and exclusive. It's not exclusive. It's for everyone. So, yeah, I guess that's part of my passion also for working in the public space is to break down those notions of exclusivity and um, accessibility. Yeah, and accessibility, and we find too, you know, it often gets framed in a, in a really negative way. Mm. Um, but it, it obviously something can still have high artistic merit and be accessible, and I think that's sort of yeah. the holy grail, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, we try and, yeah. it, you know, that equates to like 
ticket price for us. You know, yeah. we always try and set a reasonable ticket price because you know we come from working class families ourselves, and we go, why should it just be for the bourgeois? Yeah, and and it doesn't mean that we put any less effort into the show that we're making, of course, just because we want to sell the tickets for twenty bucks instead of one hundred and twenty bucks. Yeah. It, yeah, the art is still the art, and yeah. it's still just as good. And there's just as many hours, and and we pine over it in the same way. Um, Do you ever have yeah. um, find yourself within a sort of an internal ethical dilemma in terms of where the money is coming from for some of these? projects and how do you do you see yourself a curly question you, see yourself <laughs> as a, you don't have to name any companies but uh, but i know i know like in the festival world that's yeah. often often the festival will be funded by a casino or a mining yeah, company yeah, yeah. Or, and, and, yeah. And do you see yourself as robin hood in that situation he goes well if i can do something good with that money then how do you navigate that internally well, I don't think that audiences or the public should be punished and deprived maybe just because, you know, that money is going to get spent somewhere, may as well be spent on something good on the one hand. But that said, like, um, I think it's totally up to the individual artist. I know a lot of artists in certain biennales that had um, funding, for example, um, by a certain offshore kind of company, I think, that was involved in, oh, no, they're an Australian company that funded or and profited from offshore detention, for example. I mean, you know, if... I can see why artists would pull out of Biennales for that reason. Um, a lot of um, art centres um, in remote Australia, um, Indigenous art centres are funded by mining companies like BHP as a way of like giving <laughs> back. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll blow up your like <laughs> thousands of years old kind of, you know, rock art where we want to get the kind of minerals or extract from but then we'll fund this contemporary art kind of gallery I mean yeah there's just so many contradictions and I think you know case by case assessment is required and um yeah, it's similar to when people say, like, you know, UAP does a lot of work in the Middle East, um, in countries where um, human rights are contravened on, you know, on an hourly basis, probably, and women's rights and um, ethnic minority rights. And, um, yeah, I probably, I don't know, shouldn't quote it, but Dan and Matt's kind of response to that, you know, the founders of UAP is that, like, we're doing public art and there's a lot of really good people in those societies and they should get to um, get exposure and have the experience of those art projects and as similarly, well. similarly, mm. most of their wealth comes from oil. Yeah, also, so. which we all use. I mean, we're all entangled. I mean, that's this is this is the um, yeah. they used to call them wicked problems. While when I was you know studying climate change law a million years ago, I don't think they call them that anymore. But um, yeah, we're we're all embroiled, whether we like it or not. It's just how you navigate that mm. from a kind of yeah, as you say, your own ethical standpoint but also i think yeah in some circumstances you have the responsibility to um champion a certain stance of a community not just yourself mm. um i wanted to uh 
raise with you. You want to ask about robots, don't yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, he's, I know. He's dying to ask about I know robots. I'm a luddite. Don't ask about he, 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 You're dying as well, and I'm, I'm conscious of time. And I know that we will want to touch on it at some point. Um, I might be disappointing. No, no, no segue. No segue. I'm not going to try and massage the segue out of this. I'm just going to go straight fire. Uh, so I guess. The role of the artist, you know, like as a curator in your own private uh, practice or independent practice, um, but then also there's a curatorial kind of aspect to what you do here at UAP as well. You're kind mm. of liaising with the artist and the client, I imagine. Mm. Um, and often that's very like there's a human involved. There's the artist as a human. Mm. Um, but we're now seeing examples where uh, robotics or AI or other technologies are starting to get used and utilised to either help enhance um, that process or streamline that process for the artist mm. or, in the most extreme cases, do the role of the human artist. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's your um, feelings, thoughts, insights <laughs> about that? Um, well, first I just want to quickly backtrack on an, a question just very quickly, which is like you asked if I would mainly see my practice through critical spatial practice mm-hmm. now, and the answer is no. I probably want to do like a dance piece next or a choreograph piece. or And really? like I'm just as – I'm just as interested in performance and movement and sound work. That's actually another area I really want to. Um, wow. Yeah, you have a background a, in movement and dance. And I wa- I do <laughs> million years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a dancer in a con- contemporary dance company, Stompin. Um, but yeah, yeah. I suppose just to say, I would never want to just be. Um, that's the whole beauty of curating. Like if I wanted to stick with one fine point, I would have stayed as a lawyer kind of thing and like honed in on that. But with, as a curator, you can do all the things. There's no rules. And, you know, I was just um, interviewing Lucy McRae the other week who sees herself as a body architect. She's like an artist. She's got to work at Venice at the moment. And she um, also lectures at Skyark, Southern California Institute of Architecture. And um I'm just fascinated by that. Like Mm. I'll probably do an exhibition on geology, you know, next or like there's no limit, I suppose, Mm. to what you can investigate as a curator. And that's um, why I think I'm lucky to work in that, Mm. in this kind of profession. So obviously you're just on that. Obviously you, you uh, consider yourself an artist in, in, in those, uh, obviously you've been a dancer and you're talking about installation work if i could class it as that do you see the role of a curator as an artist role some curators see it as an artist role like a a meta kind of artist or like because you come up with the kind of premise for people to respond to you coach or massage that there's a lot of discussions with the artists some well, I mean like the like a remixer like in the way that you would think of a DJ <laughs> it's kind like of a bit like being a big journal like a not a big journalist but a journalist but just more resources and forms more than words to weave a narrative or put a point of view across in a way and um, Do you think there's an art to it, but you're not necessarily an yeah, artist? Yeah, I wouldn't call myself an artist, but I, some people might as a curator. Yeah, for sure. I mean, curating means to care traditionally, but um, yeah, that can be interpreted in so many different ways. Well, it's not uh, – I mean, the line between curator and director 
in certain works gets very, very thing. blurry. Mm. Mm. If you were talking about experiential participatory installation work, you know, if you were curating that, it's essentially the role of a, a director. Yeah, or facilitating. You just mm. get a bunch of really skilled artists in a space and you're facilitating them to do their thing. You go, Are you directing them or are you curating them? And And... Well, the word curating and the term curating is definitely like thrown around a lot. And these days, actually, a lot of artists are curating. (laughs) And, um, you know, even artist collectives are curating. And um, that's because we want to try and see different things and we want to, you know, see a different perspective. And and that's okay. Mm. But going back to your question, sorry, I'm jumping about. Not totally jumping about. Robots. AI, um, robots, all the things. Yes. So, yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't think what we're doing today with technology is that much different to what artists have always done since, you know, forever, I guess, thinking at least just in the Western world and had like a studio assistant or like someone else who helps or does the work. Like the robot is a tool, like a knife might be a tool or like that you might use a certain like palette of colours or um, using a different medium, you know, film versus marble, for example, you know, or when video became a thing, like, you know, there's uh, Namjoon Pikes who just, you know, totally push the edges of that new medium or um like so things like mixed reality augmented reality you would put in that category as like that's just a new tool tool. yeah i think so and like here at the uap studio it's never like one to the exclusion of the other also like we have robots that help with the um creating patterns um they're fed you know information via a computer and models and then they will cut the kind of base form pattern um for an artwork for example that that might be cast in bronze or aluminium that will always go to you know ian and yoko on our pattern making kind of team to finesse and finish by hand um Yeah, sure, they're kind of probably a bit more like an extension of the artist also than, you know. Um, But it's very very blurry. We actually have just worked on um, uh, a work for a French artist who's about to have a show at Mona where he's actually calling into question this very very kind of topic. Because Um, it's not unforeseeable... It's probably very possible, and it's probably already happening. Mm. That, although you're saying in that example, you do it does go through a human process when they hand. You could bypass that completely. Mm. You could have technology mm. that could just do that whole Replace entire process. The well, yeah. actually, that's um, you can't see it now, but pushing out to a third shed um, out the window out here is our like robotics hub, and that's where um, we've been working with universities in Queensland and across Australia to. Um, teach robots to see so that they can be doing more of those like human elements because every project we have through here is pretty much unique so you can't necessarily program the robot to respond to um, fine finishing details but they're teaching them to perhaps be able to do that I suppose. Is that that project that basically scales up 
small scale projects and can do them on a large scale using the robotics is that uh, there something there was something you were developing that was a robot that was in in with the university and it was able to replicate works on a larger scale using the robot to do the sort of finishing the scaling and the kind yeah, of yeah. relative equations and yeah. that sort of thing i'm not sure actually ah. um but I think that is relatively simple compared to what they're trying to do right. now. Yeah, yeah. Like you say in that other example, that's just—it's more of a tool. It's like um, when Andy Warhol started mass producing his prints. That was controversial at the time, yeah. too. You know, and and I mean, and you go to all the big artist studios in Europe and America. You know, your Alicia Quades or your Alafa Eliasson or your Philip Perino or you know. Uh, Thomas Saracino, they all would have a huge studio with maybe, you know, 10, 20 assistants who are all kind of, you know, where do you draw the line? Mm. Who is the, um, you know, it goes maybe back to that Solowitz kind of like conceptual art kind of idea where he was the thinker but anyone could execute these instructions for his wall drawings, for example, and he was still the artist and that was okay. You know. Yeah, and I think that there's probably a, a delineation between if you're utilising new technologies like augmented reality and mm. mixed reality and these, you still then have to find a way to interpret and integrate them into some mm. kind of form mm. and, and how, am I, how am I going to create the content that they do and how they, is that going to interact with the live art element or whatever it is. But when the creation of the art itself is created by a program or a, or AI, and that's I guess a different thing. Mm-hmm. Can can AI? Well, as a pro, as a provocation, could AI replace artists? Quite possibly, yeah. Well, I don't know. Possibly, I think it's interesting. I think I think what's interesting in that kind of sphere is like when you think about okay, like VR, but just virtual reality, like. We haven't really, that's been around for a while. We haven't really pushed the boundaries of that as a new medium or material to work with like we have with other materials. Like so far it just seems to be like a cool novel viewing platform of an existing artwork or or, um, or kind of... Did I read they're the using it to almost as like a previs... Yeah. tool to start to see what a yep. sculpture might look like virtually. Exactly, yeah. So um, we have a few HoloLenses here that, so for example, we recently did a project with Ruben Patterson um, for Auckland Art Gallery. It's this giant kind of crystalline uh, walker or canoe. And obviously with COVID, he wasn't able to travel, but we instead kind of built the canoe to scale um, in VR and then sent him the HoloLens with the program in it for him to be able to see and, and walk around and give comment on and then respond to that. And we've done it similar, similarly with um, Lindy Lee's recent big uh, controversial um, NGA, uh, National Gallery of Australia and Canberra Commission. Um, it's quite a huge work and we um, 
we've done that in virtual reality for her to be able to go into and for the directors of the museums to be able to go into. I mean, it's a very useful tool. Same with augmented um, reality where in terms of manufacturing, if you don't have to, you know, pick up a ruler and or, you know, tape measure or keep going from the, the work to the plans to the work to the plans on the workshop floor, but you just have the kind of the lens on you can see exactly pretty much where you just need to nail and hammer and cut wow yeah yeah so it's very efficient that's amazing yeah and and i and i think in in those ways it just helps artists to do a better job of what they do and so many resources and money is going into a sculpture yeah you know and and things like scale uh are really important Um, yeah yeah, but um i think it's also like um this beautiful taciturn dean work where um, you know, she works in film and photography and um, she wanted to create a work that could only be done on film. So um, obviously uh, like a 35mm film is often um, rolled in uh, landscape mode but this film is done completely in portraiture mode and that was this process of like cutting and sticking and cutting and sticking and creating this beautiful moving image of um, masks and um, existing imagery on this rolling um, portrait kind of analogue film. I think she did it for the Tate Turbine Hall, which is um, portraiture-oriented. But she talks about, like, never fully going to, like, the full cutting edge of technology and forgetting about the past. Mm. How can Mm. existing technologies always come into your practice and um, never one to the exclusion of the other? And some beautiful outcomes can come from that, like, marriage of the old and the new, I suppose. Yeah, Mm. yeah, and and, and there's still a person at the the nexus of that because they're interpreting that new toy, that new tool. And I was just listening to a podcast on the way up here, actually, talking to a music producer and he was talking about, you know, new, he gets sent new um, plugins and software and he'll like create new songs mm. based on, oh, how does this mm. work, this plugin? And he'll just try it and then put a beat behind it and then he's producing songs. So he's using technology and new, new technology all the time, new software mm. and trialling it out, but he's still then having to... Um, experiment with that in a way to put it together into some form that Mm. then becomes a track that he releases as a producer human curiosity amazing yeah well i think i have a lot of faith in human imagination actually and i and i would be surprised if it was eclipsed by ai anytime soon and, um, you know, even working in relax, law, relax. like life is stranger than fiction. You could not dream, uh, like, yeah, even, yeah, the human imagination, what actually happens in life, like some of the things that um, eventuate, like you, you couldn't imagine it in your wildest yeah. dreams. And yeah. that's kind of amazing. And mm. thank God for that, actually. I think, I think and, we're too interested in each other mm. and ourselves to take ourselves out of the equation and maybe these ne- new technologies are used as tools, but they're still manipulated by a human. Like, makes me think of like when computers were coming out. Like, uh, there's this project. I think it's called um, House of Dust, and uh, someone programmed it with an algorithm that just um, this computer could continually spit out new um, like three line poems using these like house made of bricks 
full of birds for friends. A house made of straw with no windows and um, for horses. Like there were these variables, but they came out in the most like beautiful, like absurd but magical kind of configurations. But that was the human in partnership with the mm-hmm. computer. And, um, you know, that's nothing new today that's been going on forever, I guess. Yeah. What are you... Um <laughs> What are you most excited about in this space of public art, you know, in terms of where it's going? Like where where might it go or where would you like to see it go over the next sort of 50 years? Mm. Good question. And I did have a heads up on this, so I did have time to think <laughs> about it. Um, and I, it's a tough question. I'm... I think I said before I'm really interested in sound art and immersive kind of landscapes. I think there is so much stuff in the world and this kind of feeds into sustainability as well and a lot of artists that we're speaking to, that is a consideration, particularly in public art, that they're thinking, how is this made? What are the resources involved? It's very, um, you know, energy intensive. It's very um, uh, full of finite resources, Um they're asking, how can I make my work more sustainably? doesn't necessarily have to feed into the concept. They could be talking about something completely different. But for sure, if someone like Janet Lawrence's work that I mentioned before with the greenhouse kind of was made sustainably, that would totally bolster and enhance her concept and kind of, um, yeah, um, make it kind of come full circle. But I think there's some of the um, most lasting works that I've um, experienced are sound works when it's done well and they're kind of like a refuge in a way because we see so much on our phones on computers we're fed like so much quick information and um, you know are we using our ears that much like are we listening and yeah an artist I know also uses like listening in a sense when they're talking about um, like having been read by you, he they say, like, um, thanks for hearing me when they're talking about something even that they've seen. So I think it's like just remembering our other senses as well and then it's more ephemeral in a way. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it requires the power to keep it up and then there's that kind of, um, yeah, argument about where that power is coming from. But, um, yeah, so I guess sound work I'd be excited to see more of in the public realm because it arrests you as well if it's done right and it can make you stop and we all know like everyone is way too busy these days even though we're trying not to be um you'd have to hack into everyone's airpods in order to do a that's successful right. sound that's also true everyone's blanked out AirPods yeah in, <laughs> and uh they even if you did a public sound art they wouldn't hear it because they mm. got noise cancelling headphones in so unless you could hack <laughs> use technology also yeah, yeah enter a zone and <laughs> into their space into their heads um i guess yeah all inclusive kind of um uh, integrated works with buildings where the whole building maybe becomes like the work, like you see uh, with plants sometimes or architecture that kind of um, there's no line between the art and the mm. architecture. I think mm. that would be really interesting and work that, uh, you know, changes the way that we behave, I suppose, as a society and the way we see 
the world. I mean, I guess that's like a no-brainer. Like everyone wants to come across a work like that. But, um, yeah, shakes shakes the status quo, I guess, and um, thinks about uh, uh, or provokes us to work in a different way. Right now in my mind I'm thinking of like Agnes Dennis who would make um, kind of um, beautiful mountain shapes and plant trees, uh, you know, in the 70s. But already she was thinking about future generations. Yeah. Um, and where can people – is there anything that you want to plug before we wrap up? And uh, is there anything <laughs> in your own practice that you would like to uh, promote or or let people know where they can find out some more information about you and the work that you're doing? Um. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a website that um, is in desperate need of attention, inikadane.com. And um, absolutely check out the work that UAP is doing. To the contrary, UAP just upgraded the website, so it's amazing. <laughs> um, and I guess it's just uapcompany.com. I should know that, but... Um, it's got an incredible archive of the projects across the world from the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And it's really quite inspiring to see. So, yeah, definitely check that out. Well, they might get another four or five hits now from our <laughs> listeners, um, Sam's mum and, and a yep. few other people. <laughs> um, no, it's uh, fascinating to get an insight into your world. Um, and I guess in many ways realize in some ways how similar it is to what we do when we're curating a show or or producing a show um and yet in other ways how radically different it is um so yeah thank you for your time and for uh, talking out your arts with us Um, it was fascinating oh such a pleasure thanks so much for having me (laughs) cheers